0: Well, good morning again. I'm Camper Mundy, Associate Pastor, and I too would like to welcome those of you who are visiting. We're uh, glad to have you with us. And this morning, we begin a uh, two-week mini-series in the Book of Philippians, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Uh, This coincides with our current Adult Ed series, where we are also in the Book of Philippians. So uh, those of you in uh, Adult Ed, we're going to hope to to go a little bit deeper uh, these next two weeks uh, with a a short sermon series of the same book. And today, we we step into one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, uh, Philippians 2. And I've heard it said, if the Bible were an art gallery, that this piece of art would be one of the top two or three pieces in the whole gallery. This masterpiece that we're about to gaze upon is an amazing portrait. It's a portrait of God, and this portrait of God could be entitled Humility and Grace, uh, one that is painted by the divine artist himself uh, through the paintbrush of the Apostle Paul and brought to us now. Of course, any art appreciator knows that one sitting before a masterpiece only gives a person a mere glimpse into the enormity of of an art piece's beauty, but also, as any art appreciator knows, even a mere glimpse is still enough to move a heart, so much so that it will call us back again and again and again. Well, our text today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's found on page 980, if you're using the Pew Bible. Uh, Let me pray for us before we hear God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is life, and we pray that you would speak life deep into our hearts today, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty, the enormity of your gospel in Jesus. And so would you open us to your word? Would you open your word to us? Would you not only move our hearts, but would you change them? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of God from Philippians chapter 2, with verse 27 of chapter 1 as an introduction to our passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is God's word, given to us for our good and his glory. And so to it we turn. <clears throat> well, before we get into the passage, since we're, we're jumping uh, from the beginning of, of Philippians uh, in, right into chapter 2, let me set the context a little bit for us. As you heard in verse 27 uh, of the first chapter, Paul has just exhorted the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. The very thing that that Brian spoke of uh, at the beginning of the prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, that we would know the unity that we have in Christ. And then Paul, echoing Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17, Paul emphasizes here that unity in the body of Christ is essential to our witness to a watching world. Unity is essential. For one, the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. And so how could a watching world be persuaded that Christ reconciles us to God if we're not reconciled to one another? Also disunity always turns a fellowship in on itself. We end up wasting time and energy and resources when we devour one another through conflict that is not dealt with biblically in grace. Not that there's not going to be any conflict. I mean we've confessed our sin this morning. Yes, there is tension and conflict, but will we deal with it in a in a way that is biblical, in grace toward one another? Well, later in his letter, Paul will single out two individuals who are at odds with each other, but here he begins to address the tensions that exist in this fellowship of believers that he so deeply loves and cares for. And so in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul explains that unity is rooted in humility. Unity is rooted in humility. And then Paul breaks into song. And then Paul launches into this famous passage holding the magnificent portrait of Christ, is both model and source of true humility. And so this morning we're going to survey this work of art, and we're going to note three things as we do so a posture, a problem, and a person. A posture, a problem, and a person. So first, a posture, verses uh, 2 through 4. Let me reread those for us. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, when asked to to list the fundamental principles of the Christian life, uh, the great church father, St. Augustine, gave a list of three, three essentials, three fundamental principles of the Christian life. And number one was humility. Number two was humility. Number three was also humility. Humility. To have the genuine unity, to live in the unity that we have in Christ, the unity that Paul is calling us to live in, humility must be its foundation. But humility was not really embraced by the Roman culture that was influencing Philippi in that day. And it's really not embraced by our American culture today either. And that's because we often look at humility from a worldly perspective. Often when we think of humility, we think of, of weak or timid or no backbone. And yet here, in God's word, Paul says, In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. In humility, take care of the needs of others as well as your own. And isn't this simply a different way to state The great commandment where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, from a biblical perspective, humility is a posture of true strength. Humility is a posture of true strength because it flows from a place of deep security, rooted in deep security that one is loved and accepted by God in Jesus, In knowing the depths of that love and growing in the knowledge of that love. And then it is from the depths of the strength that one is then able to to look away from self and look out to others. That one is freed to love others. I think of a a young man who two years ago, I believe this month, uh, helped an older couple in need. It was a a snowy afternoon here in Williamsburg. uh, Dusk. Traffic was heavy on Monticello. Uh, The older couple uh, was going along Monticello, got a flat tire, had to pull over on the the side of the road just as they were about to get onto 199, headed to the hospital. Within moments, this young man pulled over, jumped out of his car, offered to help, got the jack out of the car, the spare tire, changed the flat for them, uh, asked if they were were locals or visiting. When, When he found out they lived in Williamsburg, he said, here's my business card. If you ever need anything, feel free to give me a call. A year and a half goes by. No communication between the two parties. A year and a half later, the, the woman, desiring to know God more, and remembering the kindness and the care of this young man, goes looking for that business card. She finds it, she calls him, and she asks if he goes to church. And he says, yes. And if you'd like to come, I'll be glad to pick you up and would be glad to sit with you as well, if that would be helpful. Well, they now have a church home, and they're growing closer to the Lord. Consider others more significant than yourselves. In humility, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests, to the needs of others. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's the rub for most of us. In our worldly view, we often think that humility is about thinking lowly of ourselves, a low self image, low self esteem. That's not what Scripture says. Because, you see, humility is able to be born out of a, a high self-esteem, a high self-image, not one rooted because I am so great, one rooted because God is so great, and my identity rests in his love and acceptance through Jesus. And resting in that, being secure in that, then frees me to look outside myself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, rather it is thinking of yourself yourself less. And being freed to think of ourselves less, we are freed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, humility. That's the posture uh, that we are to have, but there's a problem. We aren't humble people. We just aren't. Okay, now maybe you have given someone this t-shirt or this mug before, uh, you'll probably recognize the, 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 the phrase, the, the slogan on there. Uh, maybe you have been given it yourself. I don't know. Maybe you even bought it for yourself. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Have you heard that? <clears throat> well, I was, I was reminded of this phrase the other day. I was reading an article, uh, stumbled across this phrase in the article, and the writer uh, says this. Those words are stitched on cloth alongside an embroidered image of a moose with antlers. This was a gift given to my dad over 30 years ago by a friend of his. It was meant to be a shot, a put-down, but I think he has always seen it as validation. (laughs) My dad, a retired attorney, never suffered from humility and hung it with pride in his office. Now it hangs with pride in his home. Who knows, I might just make it his epitaph. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. We aren't humble people by nature. We aren't humble because of our sin. We aren't humble because we are often grasping for greatness apart from God. Well, Paul speaks to our sin very directly here in the first part of verse 3. Two words, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. So given the context here, to live in rivalry and conceit must mean that one counts him or herself more significant than others, that you do not look to the interests of others, but primarily to your own. Rivalry and conceit. Let's look uh, a little more closely at each of these two words for just a moment. Okay, first the word rivalry. If you're using the, the NIV this morning, uh, then you have come across this translation already. Another good translation would be selfish ambition. Uh, because literally in Greek, it's a compound word. It really is two words brought together, but literally it means hyper-fighting. Hyper-fighting. It refers to constant competition, A rival spirit. Oh, you can do that? Well, I can outdo that. And you know, we can detect rivalry in our hearts when we have always got to be first or we have always got to be right. Even in the small things. Think of those moments when you are with a group of friends and you tell a story. And someone's got one a little bit better. You share of an adventure you have. Oh, but they can do better than that. Or what about the times that they've shared that story and you said, well, I've got one, and you've up to them. Or what about when we're so quick to judge others, especially when we become defensive so easily? Think about when someone asks you a question and you take it as an accusation. Someone asks you and you say, oh, now, wait, what are you implying? They're implying nothing. They're just asking a simple question. We become defensive, even in small things. In his his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes about our competitive rival spirits deep within our heart when he is discussing the issue of pride. This is what he writes. Pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, then there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Okay, that's a look at the word rivalry. But what about this second word, the word conceit? Again, another good translation, and you'll find it in the NIV, is vain conceit. Also coming from a compound word, a more literal translation would be empty glory. Or I love the way the King James puts it, vain glory. It refers to glory hunger, to being starved for glory. In other words, being starved to matter. As one pastor puts it, what are we most afraid of? We are most afraid of not mattering, of being inadequate, of being insignificant. And so we grasp for significance. We grasp to matter. We grasp for glory in and of ourselves. We grasp grasp for it through acquisitions, through our achievements, even through our appearances. Look at me. Look at me. I matter. That's what we are crying to a watching world I matter. We're grasping in and of ourselves, and ultimately we come up. Empty. It's vainglory. Okay, have you ever been to a 3D movie? I know there's 3D TV, but let's let's talk about 3D movie for a moment. Okay, probably the cheesiest 3D movie I ever saw was Jaws 3D. Okay, now, let me not mislead you. The original Jaws is excellent. Uh, However, please do not watch this with your small children or you will never go to the beach again. Uh, but excellent film. You know, tonight, the Academy Awards, uh, the original Jaws won three Oscars. Jaws 3D, uh, it was nominated for five awards, five Razzies. If you're not familiar with the Ra- Razzies, they are the exact opposite of the Oscars. They are Hollywood's worst. You really can look this up. There are Razzie Awards given. I don't know how Jaws 3D did not win those that it was nominated for, so those other movies must have been really bad. Okay, Jaws 3D. I digress. I'm talking about 3D movies. Okay, you've been to a 3D movie. One of the fun things to do at a 3D movie is to stop watching the film for a moment and to start watching all the people sitting in front of you because they're doing this. (laughs) They got their hands out. But, of course, you go to see the film, and so you're watching the film. And everything in front of you seems so real. You know that it's an illusion, but you do the very same thing. You reach out and you grasp for nothing. And you come up empty. And that's so often the same way that we live our lives. We grasp to get ahead. We grasp to make a name for ourselves. We grasp to be significant, to matter. Well, in calling us to unity through humility, Paul points out that rivalry and conceit will ultimately kill us. It'll kill us as a body as we selfishly compete to outdo one another in vain grasping for personal glory. And yet, you know what? We were created for glory. We were created for glory. That's why we crave it so much. That's why we go grasping for it. We were created for it. Just not the empty glory of self-serving, selfish ambition, and vain conceit. We were created for something bigger than ourselves. We were created for a glory that is self-giving, and love, and humility. And the only way to begin looking away from self, And to start looking out toward others is to look to Jesus. And that leads to our final point. Clearly, we're called to a posture of humility. And clearly, each of us has a problem, a problem deep, deep down in our hearts. So clearly, we need to look elsewhere. We need to look to a person. And fortunately, there is someone who addresses our problem. And to this person, to Jesus, we turn. Verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. A beautiful picture, a beautiful portrait. And again, this brief passage is widely considered one of the top two or three masterpieces in the art gallery of Scripture. So much is said in just these seven verses. In fact, two commentaries that I was looking at devoted 40 to 50 pages on just these seven verses. Then there was a book that I came across, 364 pages, All 364 devoted to these seven verses. And we're going to get less than 10 minutes. But remember, even a glimpse at a masterpiece is enough to move a heart. And like any great masterpiece, we'll want to come back and view it again and again and again. Well, Paul's basic point here, Paul's basic point, it's simple. And I'll just quote Hebrews 12, too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. As one commentator puts it, the greatness of our Lord's self-humbling is measured by how low he was prepared to stoop. From the great heights which were his natural and rightful place. Verse 6, Jesus was in the form of God, or in very nature God. And Paul makes clear in the next phrase that Jesus possesses equality with God. He is God, one with God. And though one with God, Jesus did not grasp or jealously guard his rights as the Son of God. Instead, verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing. Poured himself out, emptied himself, not of his divinity, but by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. To paraphrase one theologian, the Lord of glory emptied himself, not by subtraction of his divinity, but by the assumption of our humanity. Fully God, fully man, Truly, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And the God-man, verse 8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. For our sake, in love for you, in love for me, a servant of God stooping down to serve us. In the words of biblical scholar Gordon Fee, in Jesus Christ, the true nature of the living God has been revealed ultimately and finally. God is not a grasping, self-centered being. He is most truly known through the one whose equality with God found expression in his pouring himself out in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place, the role of a slave, and whose love For his human creatures found consummate expression in his death on the cross. Again, Paul's basic point is this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then right there, the writer of Hebrews continues, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, To the glory of God the Father. In this beautiful portrait, we have a magnificent description here of Jesus' exaltation. Jesus is returned to the head of the table. He has been welcomed home to his rightful place of special honor. In verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is Jesus, Savior. And Lord. In the words of hymn writer Graham Kendrick, this is our God, the servant king. So, yes, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. For as we look to Jesus, as we look to him, his love, our hearts become more and more convinced of his love for us. We become more and more secure, deeply rooted in that love. We are then freed into true humility. Freed from bondage to self, we are freed to love others in a self-giving, sacrificial, humble way. And also, as we look to Jesus, we see who we're becoming. Who we are becoming through faith. And so we can rejoice knowing by the, by the power of His indwelling Spirit that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. The very one that we are looking at. The very one on whose portrait we are gazing. Knowing that He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. And this is true glory. Now, I've shared this story with you before. It hasn't happened to me yet, um, but a fellow pastor was officiating a wedding a few years ago. As usual, the groom was standing at the, the front of the, the worship area. Uh, the groom was standing there uh, with the pastor just before that great moment in all weddings, and then that moment came. The back doors opened, the bride walks in. And, of course, everyone stands and looks back and is beaming. No one beaming more than the groom standing up front looking at his bride. Well, this groom turned and looked at his pastor and said, I'll be right back. And he took off down the aisle after his bride. How would it change you to really believe that this is God's posture toward you? How would it change you? Okay, men, maybe that's a a difficult illustration to get your heads around. Think about it this way. A police officer, a firefighter, a soldier. A man is down, and that man is you. And someone risks it all, gives everything to leave his place of safety, to come running after you, to give his life for you, that you might be rescued. How would it change you to really believe that that is God's posture toward you? Well, you should believe it because it's true. Jesus left his place of glory to come after us. Jesus gave up his glory so that we could gain glory. Jesus emptied himself so that we could be filled with the righteousness of Christ. That is true love. That is true glory. That is what we were created for and that is what we are given in Jesus. So united in Christ, we are called to humility. And the call to humility is ultimately a call to Jesus. To trust Him. To follow Him to look to him again and again and again. And so let us fix our eyes on him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the model, the source of true humility and of true glory. And let's turn to him in prayer.